Hello, welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast, a podcast by whoscored.com. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, joined by Ben from Who Scored, and we've got Jonathan Wilson with us again today in Qatar as well. Jonathan, I'll come to you. How is Qatar? How have you found the World Cup? Because I don't think I've spoken to you since the World Cup started. Uh, it's really, really, really tiring. Uh, so I've done 17 games in 17 days. Um, in terms of football, I think it's been uh, really, really good. I think it's yeah. been excellent. Um, stadiums are good. The infrastructure is pretty good. Some glitches in the first week, but they seem to have sorted them out. But, yeah, that's not really the point, unfortunately. No, I mean, I found myself struggling to get excited by the tournament. But as soon as it started, if we, if we focus on the football alone. The football has been really good. But what's the best game you've been to so far, Jonathan? Uh, I was at like, Serbia Cameroon 3-3, which was really exciting. Nice. Uh, I saw Portugal... Uh, wins to one last night, which was you know really really good performance. I was at Brazil the previous night, which people seem to get very excited by. I, I thought it was pretty pretty easy for them once they got the two early goals. I, you know, I thought it was um, you didn't really learn much. You didn't already know about them. Um, I've been to three of the Argentina games. I missed the one where they lost, but I've been to the other three. The atmosphere at those games is 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 really good. So, um, but in terms of just pure entertainment and excitement, I'd say as yeah, I'd say that like Cameroon Serbia three three. Yeah, and who's been your favourite team so far in the World Cup? Who's been the most impressive? Well, Portugal last night, I thought they were absolutely yeah. sensational against a good a good Swiss team. Um, I mean, Brazil clearly good, France clearly good, England, uh, uh, I think, better than we'd feared. Um, the, the, the Dutch have been really interesting. Uh, obviously, we're not quite the same level of player. The Argentina games are such an event. You know, there's this, this is sort of almost uh, like a poignancy about watching Argentina now that... This this thing that we've invested so much time and emotion and intellectual energy into, in my case, over forty six years, I'm the best player, certainly in my life, in my sort of sentient lifetime, to play that. And every game, you're aware this might be this might be the last. So every time you watch Messi, you're aware this might be the last time you ever see him on this stage, and that 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 clearly feeds into the enormous sort of emotion around every Argentina game. And what I'm not sure about that is whether that will sustain them and carry them through. And the sort of bond between the squad and the fans is is really obvious and, and it clearly, you know, it's, it's a quite a powerful thing. Or whether ultimately that just becomes exhausting. Yeah, it's really interesting to, to see Messi, like you say, every single game. So people talk about Argentina at times carrying him because he's a walking pace. I, I would completely disagree with that argument. I, I don't think that's true at all. He's just an absolute magician floating around the pitch, in my opinion. Looking forward to getting your opinions on England a little later in the show, Jonathan. But Ben, we're getting towards the business end of the World Cup now. We're into the quarterfinals and you've got a last 16, best 11. Yeah, in goal is Croatia's Livakovic. Uh, we've got back four of Dumfries, Rodri, Lovren and Blind. Midfield is Fernandes on the right, Bellingham and Paqueta in the middle and Mbappe on the left. And up front is Richarlison and, of course, Gonzalo Ramos. I wasn't sure about the middle of that midfield, as I'm not sure about the middle of Brazil's midfield. Lucas Paqueta can't can't do that against a good side. No, but I guess he did, he did do that in the last 16, so I guess it's legitimate. But, yeah, I'd be worried about that. There's a very attacking who scored 11 there that the algorithm has pulled out, Ben. But fair enough, that, that's the 11. That's that's what the algorithm's done and that's what the algorithm does. We're going to start then with the golden ball. So far, who would you have down as being the favourite for the golden ball or is it a little bit too early to tell? They give it to the most famous bloke left in it. So 
It could be Messi, it could be Mbappe. Um, you know, every man of the match goes to the most famous person. There was a great moment last night at the end of the Portugal game where because they announced it on the screen and we saw Wayne, are they still actually going to give it to Ronaldo or will they, will they acknowledge that uh, Gonzalo Ramos deserves it? And they, they did give it to Ramos, but um, yeah, it, it, it's it's always the famous bloke who scores goals. So if France win, it'll be Mbappe. If, if Argentina win, it'll be Messi. Yeah, it's usually, it's usually someone that, that gets to the final at the very least. I think we have had a, the loser of a final a few yeah, times. Yeah, Modric won it last time. Yeah, there's been a few others as well. I've thought of another it's one. Because they, they decided before the final, but it is always a finalist, you're right. Yeah, so obviously a lot depends on what happens in, in the last eight, Ben. From an England point of view, if England do manage to get to the final... Would you say Bellingham would probably be the favourite so far? He's definitely got a chance. Um, he's obviously been arguably England's best player at the World Cup so far. And if you know if England beat France, gets the semi-finals, that kind of rules Mbappe out. Uh, if Argentina slipping against the Netherlands, that kind of rules Messi out. So there's a legitimate argument for Bellingham to come into consideration for the Golden Ball if he continues to shine for England and they do get to the final and possibly win it. Yeah, we are going to come on to England later on in the show. But Ben, you've got you've got a top 10 so far. So who, who the main contenders would be using the algorithm? So the top 10 of the players still at the World Cup, uh, number 10 is Frankie de Jong. And then it's Casemiro, Antoine Griezmann, Richarlison. Bellingham's in there at sixth as the best rated player still at the World Cup. Uh, Gakpo in fifth, Saka fourth, and the top three of Messi, Fernandes and Mbappe. Probably a lot of players in there, Jonathan, that I would have said deserve to be in there. What one that I'm going to pick out just, just quickly is, is Casemiro. It's mm. even since he's arrived at Manchester United, he's a, a much better footballer than I've ever really previously given him credit for. Just just on on the ball, you know, he's got a lovely goal at the start of the, of the World Cup as well. He's he's done well for Manchester United since he's come in. He just he's, he's more than a defensive midfielder, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, um, was it the third Brazil goal he set up against South Korea last night? With that, uh, like two nights ago, with that, uh, yeah, very, very quick, straight through ball. So yeah, he's and he's and he's essential for Brazil because they they don't have another holding player. Um, I, I think they probably will bring in somebody a bit more. I hope they bring in somebody a bit more defensive, probably Fred, um, against better sides. But when it's him and Lucas Paqueta as the two deepest line midfielders, he he's doing a lot of the carrying, but he's also getting forward, scoring goals and setting goals up. Yeah, Gappo as well is someone I've enjoyed watching. He's probably been one of my favourites of, of the World Cup so far. He's going to turn into a, a, a pretty good centre forward, isn't he, Jonathan? Yeah, he's 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 a bit more than just a centre forward as well. I, I, I sort of had quite appreciated how good he is as an all-round footballer. So um, I was at that Netherlands Senegal game, the first the first game that he played, and I think the suggestion was, and Louis Van Gaal seemed to say afterwards that he wouldn't have played had Depay been fit. To get the balance of a front three right, he he in his head he thought it was one of Gakpo or or Depay, and then from the third game onwards the two have been playing together. So I think I think the Dutch have actually really benefited from Depay being out those first two games because they've seen how good Gakpo is and how he is. He's you know he's not just a you know a quick player who can, who can finish. He he's actually got much more to his game and and that link up with Depay, and then whether it's Klassen or whether it's um, uh, Bergwijn. Uh, yeah, has, 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 they've had a real sort of cutting edge in a team that's actually, certainly by Dutch standards, fairly defensive. Yeah, pretty efficient Holland so far, and Gakpo's been, been a good part of that as well. Scoring goals, right foot, left foot, he looks really, really dangerous. Ben, I believe there's a golden ball quiz question. Back against the wall here, you've already told me that Jonathan will be the favourite. But do you want to give the question? 
Yep. So unsurprisingly, no player that hasn't reached the semis has ever won it, won the Golden Ball since it was first awarded in 1982. In that time, only two players that haven't reached the final have won it. Name those players. Toto Scarchi is correct. It's definitely correct from 1990. I've got nothing yet. Nothing here. You were right. <laughs> well, okay. Like, 82 was Rossi, who obviously won it. 86 was Maradona, who won it. 90 was Scalacci, who lost in the semi. Um, oh, it must be. Is it a German from 06? It's not, no. Um, well, hang on. 94 was Romario. Yeah, it was. 98 was Ronaldo. 02 was Khan. Yeah. I don't know who won it in 06. Uh, Zidane. Yeah, it was Zidane. 10 was... Oh, it was Diego Forlan in 2010. Yeah. Diego Forlan. I'd have never got that. Mm. I'd have never... I'm surprised I knew who won it in 2006, in all honesty. <laughs> well done, Jonathan. You got there. You've, you've done what's expected, but you can only beat what's put in front of you, as we, as we know. <laughs> so, well done still. I'm not going to belittle the performance. It was fantastic knowledge. Let's look now at England against France. And as I say, Jonathan, I've been looking forward to speaking to you about this because we haven't conversed through the tournament so far. When we did our England preview shows, we were a little bit concerned about a few things. But really now, we're in the knockout phase. Southgate's record in, in knockout football is absolutely stupendous. It hasn't lost a game in normal time. And England were very, very good against Senegal the other night. And perhaps doing it in a, in a different kind of way because Southgate has kind of let the shackles off. Foden's playing, Bellingham's playing as a 10. And England look fresh and they look exciting. Yeah, I, I think the shackles off, shackles on, handbrake off, handbrake on is it just, it's not how football is. It's, yeah, he's, he's, he's picked his structure and his structure initially is, is intended to contain and then it, it strikes so i thought it was very um noticeable in that senegal game was at first for 20 minutes so england with a better side but were struggling to create chances a couple of crosses uh, but that was it and then it actually was because they they sort of started to lose belief in themselves and dropped a bit deeper that drew senegal out and suddenly there's space to hit and that that i think is where england are their best playing on playing not on the counter i don't think england are uh, sort of um psychologically uh, strong enough to, to have sort of 30% of the ball and win. But th that's how they create their chances. And once there is space, they're very, very good at, at cutting through and, 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 and taking advantage. Um, so I, I, I sort of think that the way they played against Senegal was the way Southgate's always envisaging playing. It was similar to the Ukraine game. Um, I think Senegal lost heart pretty quickly, so I wouldn't read too much into that game. But the way that England took those two chances at the end of the first half, that, that I think, is encouraging going forward because it means that they don't have to dominate games and get loads of corners and loads of free kicks to, to force chances. They, they they can create a chance when the opposition comes at them. Yeah, and a game like France is obviously, you know, that's an ideal way for England to play. We, we've touched on him a little bit, Ben, so far already in, in Jude Bellingham. How would you describe his, his role for England at, at the moment? Would you say he's playing more as a 10? Is he an 8? Is he an, an 8 and a half? What role is he playing at the moment for England? It kind of depends on the shape, obviously. I mean, in the 4-3-3, you look at him more as kind of an 8 and a half. He's got that licence to get up and support the attack, but then he does get back into that, uh, into that midfield three to help Rice and Henderson. It's a very interesting role for him because... He's obviously played out wide for Dortmund. He's played number 10 role. He's played deeper as well. But in this kind of position, in this role, he kind of needs to combine those three. And there were obviously concerns about whether he has the defensive awareness of whether he could carry out those duties 
in a two alongside Rice. In a three, he has kind of more creative attacking freedom. But he's just excelled in that eight and a half role. And that's going to be crucial if England are going to go all the way. Because Henderson's come into the team, Jonathan, which has, has worked well. Obviously, he, he scored the first goal. He's kind of brought a calming presence into England's midfield. So Bellingham, in a way, is now playing in Mason Mount's place, I would say. Would you have said that mm-hmm. would have been the plan pre-tournament? Or do you think it's kind of something that Sarkis just come across as the tournament's gone on and, it, and it's gone well? I don't know if it would be the plan, but I, I think Southgate would have been aware over the, and certainly over the course of this year of Bellingham playing a bit more regularly for England and being more involved in squads, that he does have that great gift that he can play as one of the deeper two midfielders against a weaker side, or he could play as the most advanced of the three centre midfielders against a better side. So I think Southgate would, at the very least, have been aware that Bellingham versus Mount was a, you know, was what that 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 debate was going to be for that third place against good you know against better teams i think the way man's form has been this season although i think he you know he improved through october and, and november it still hasn't been great bellingham's you know in sensational form is probably a better footballer even than mount and i think mount is a is a magnificent footballer um so was it the plan i i i, I don't know i i suspect he didn't have tightly drawn up blueprints he would have sort of ideas of where it would go or where it could go. Um, but I think now there is a little bit of a of a dilemma there. That midfield three looks so good and so balanced. Do you say that's good enough to take France on? Or do you say, no, we're still really worried by the pace of Mbappe and we're slightly worried by that French midfield and you you, you mess about with it? And, and, and that, I think, is the big question that I would always have said before the last two games that... England would have gone with a back three against better opposition against France. It would have gone with a back three. Now I've, that doubt is there. It was. It looked so good against Senegal that that, that maybe you don't need to change it. Um, you could keep the midfield three and play a back three, but then you're left with Kane plus Foden or Saka. Foden's intelligence. You you quite like the idea of. You quite want. But Saka's pace getting beyond Kane when Kane drops deep might be necessary, and you then very reliant for width on the on the wing backs. Yeah, the selection for this one is going to be interesting because I'm the same as you, Jonathan. I would have said three at the back would be an absolute certainty with Kyle Walker at right centre back, and then you've got Kieran Trippier in the in the side as well. But that four three three has has worked well, and England have been pretty good defensively. They had lapses against Iran, but other than that, they haven't conceded a goal and they've looked very, very solid. Would you be confident in that back four containing France, Jonathan? I don't know. Um, and Steve Holland was interesting yesterday, sort of saying that, yeah, it's not, these are not sort of right or wrong questions. It's, yeah, do you, how do you combat Mbappe? Do you stick somebody on him and, and yeah, essentially make it a 10v10 game? Or, do you try and just stop the game before it gets to Mbappe? Um, I think at club level, you'd probably go with the latter because you trust the structure and you tr- trust the system. If you're a you know, good side, you trust the system. Maybe at the national level, you have to do something a bit more basic. Um, I mean, it may be a case that you start with the back three, you try and neutralise Mbappe, and then if things aren't working out, you, you have the option to go to something a bit more expansive. Um, I mean... In that, is, yeah, should it be Foden, should it be Saka debate? You might possibly like Sterling there, as somebody yeah, you I know works with Sterling Kane, can go beyond him. But obviously, you know, we, I, I think it's very unlikely he'll play now, even if he does come back to Qatar. Um, do you play Rashford? 
I, I, I think probably easy option off the bench. So um, I, I, I sort of, yeah, you can ask me now what I do and I give you a different answer now to what I give you in an hour's time. I'm sort of flip-flopping between the two, whether you, you go more defensive with the back three or whether you think actually this side is good enough and you, you take France on. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you. Pre-tournament, I'd have 100% said back three, but having watched England so far, I would lean towards that 4-3-3. That three, three. I think that suits England better and it gets England's better attacking players into the team because, Ben, the problem with three at the back is, in all likelihood, probably one of, one of Bellingham or Henderson has to has to sit out if England go to a back three because you're playing with the two holders. No, I, I, I don't think, think it is that. I think it's Saka or Foden, yeah. I think, think. they go 3-5-2, yeah. I, I feel like one of, I feel like you'd have because to the, the problem is, Bellingham out. If you do that, you've got two in the middle against three French midfielders. So you're gonna you're gonna be overrun in that area, and then you've got no chance of uh, of sort of of holding France sort of closer. Yeah, you know, France is gonna be camped sort of 35, 40 yards from your goal. So at least if you can compete with them in midfield, you're you're, you're pushing them back slightly. Yeah, even you saying that though makes me think. Well, surely we should just play four three three. Kyle Walker's you know still got bags of pace but he's he's not that marauding right back that, that he once was he, he sits in a little bit more for man city as well so he can play as a right back against mbappe and still probably not come forward as much and and sit in and if you've got bellingham on the right hand side of the 4-3-3 he can drift wide if, if needed and you've got saka there as well with the pace i, I honestly think the, the 4-3-3 is the way to go but you look at how england lined up in the euros against germany italy that's when southgate moved to a three-man defense so it was against those kind of bigger nations with all due respect to say scotland and Czech Republic and Ukraine, etc. Um, he went for that three-man defence against Germany and Italy. So he does have that in the locker against sort of the bigger nations. Um, against Germany, it worked really well because they managed to contain Germany and then brought on Grealish and that kind of changed the game in England's favour. Against Italy, it worked for so long, then he took Rice off and it all fell apart from there. Um, Walker and Stones do have experience against Mbappe for City uh, against PSG and... You know, they did contain them to an extent. So you have to wonder if Southgate's kind of seen what City have done against PSG uh, and against Mbappe. Do they just kind of stick with that Walker Stones right-sided um, partnership? Or do they, you know, switch the back three, possibly drop Saka out, put Foden in there alongside Kane because he has played through the middle for City, even though Southgate said otherwise. Um it's just kind of a case of whether Southgate wants to try and contain France for the opening sort of half hour, and as the you know, game opens up a bit more towards the last last half an hour, do you maybe bring on Saka, maybe bring on Grealish, go a bit more open and try and peg France back that way, or does he look to go at them uh, from the outset? I agree with Jonathan in that he does need to play three-man midfield because with Griezmann dropping into that kind of number eight, number ten hybrid role, he does need three against three rather than three against two, because if that does happen, uh, then France are going to tear England apart. So I would also be inclined to stick with the 4-3-3. Momentum is in England's side. And if you set up to sit back against France, they're going to, you know, take the initiative. And by the time it comes to the last sort of half hour and you can bring on the players that can change a game, it could be too late. But France will be sitting there knowing England are a good team, Jonathan, but... If the French equivalent of this were doing a podcast, they're probably not talking about making specific changes to, to counter England. England, you wouldn't think so. Again, I I lean towards the four three three because I think I think England are good enough to, to take France with the players they've got. As I say, I, I kind of I can't make my mind up between the two options, and, and, and I sort of vacillate between the two. Um, I sort of go back to um, 
was a press conference Southgate gave in September before the two Nations League games, where you could tell he was frustrated with himself for what happened in June, and he sort of said, "I let myself be um, uh, sort of swayed from his his sort of core principles." Uh, in June, that, that he, you know, he did open up. He was more attacking than he wanted to be, and that led to those two big defeats to Hungary, or the one big defeat and the other defeat to Hungary. Um, and you could see he really regretted that, and he sort of said, I'll, "You know, I've got to make sure that I do it my own way." And that that perhaps hints to me that that he will go back to the back three. But then listening to Steve Holland yesterday, it sounded a bit more like the back four. So, yeah, I, I mean. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's. I think it's easy at this stage to say, "Oh, yeah, you know, England, uh, England are playing well. Go with the momentum. Go gung ho. At least sort of have a go." But actually, I, th- I think, yeah, even if they lose playing like that, you'd still be thinking, "Well, maybe they should have been a bit more cautious. Should have been a bit more sensible." Uh, you know, it's 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 just very very hard to say. And the the thing with France is as well that apart from Mbappe. I mean, Gresman's played really well as well. But I don't think defensively they've looked that sound. I mean, Poland created no. chances against them. If you look at the XG of that, that game, although it felt like France were totally in control, um, Poland won the XG 1.8 to 1.2. Now, I know there's a penalty in there. Um, and I know that two of the Mbappe goals are, are sensational would have had a low XG. But I think that's revealing that, that, that Poland could create chances like that. But even that, I don't think it gives you a clear indication of which way you should go because that, that might suggest, oh, we'll have a go at them because they're vulnerable. But it might also suggest, well, Poland are really defensive, really negative, and they still created those chances. Maybe England can afford to be really defensive, shut France out. And if they don't let France score, well, they'll create two or three chances and then Kane or Saka or Rashford coming off the bench, maybe they, they take one of those chances and win it 1-0 in a, in a scruffy game. Maybe that is the way to go. Um Set plays as an advantage for England. I think that, you know, it's still a real strength. And they, yeah, you know, Southgate was talking about after the Senegal game that England's goals in this tournament haven't really come from set plays. So that's that's a way that they've evolved and got better. But that doesn't mean the set plays aren't still a threat and still an asset. And maybe it's something that opponents aren't looking at in the way that they they were four years ago when it was obvious that that was England England's main way of scoring. So I don't know. I started that thinking I was talking about playing a four three three, and I've, I think I've talked myself around again to the back three. So I, I don't know. It's, it's a huge test for England. Obviously, the, the toughest game England have had so far, Ben. We've, we've talked about Bellingham already plenty, but there is an interesting battle in that midfield with two young players, with two of many, and Bellingham potentially could both end up being Real Madrid teammates at some point. Two of many, what have you made of him so far in this World Cup? Because there's a lot of pressure on him with the players that France have got missing in midfield. Yeah, a lot of pressure on there, especially with, with that Pogba and Kante, because they, had they been fit, they probably wouldn't France's go-to again. It's... You know, a new midfield partnership with him and Rabiot, but you'd ex- have expected him to shoulder that pressure. He's slotted in seamlessly at Real Madrid to fill Casemiro's boots. And he has been solid, if unspectacular. Um, he sort of grants Griezmann that freedom to drift between the two banks in midfield and support the offensive. And that allows uh, Mbappe and Dembele to kind of wreak havoc down the left and the right. You know, he just, he protects the defence well. Uh, as Jonathan said, the defence hasn't been solid, but they it does look significantly stronger with Tuchemini in there. 
Yeah, England can breach that defence for, for sure. I think Lloris looks a little bit suspect as well whenever whenever I watch him play for Spurs. And he's had a few shaky moments for France as well so far in this tournament. There's a tale of two number nines, Jonathan. Harry Kane got off the mark in the last 16 and Giroud has obviously broke France's goal-scoring record during this tournament. He, I think he's a lovely, lovely footballer. He probably doesn't get the praise he deserves, in my opinion. He's capable of the spectacular as well. But obviously Giroud v Kane. That's an interesting matchup as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Kane's the better player, but he works perfectly in his front side and his selflessness. I mean, it seems odd to talk about selflessness for somebody who is his country's record scorer, but didn't score at the last World Cup and, and you know, played a key role for them. So he's running the way he creates space from Mbappe. And Mbappe clearly loves playing with him. I mean, you know, he said that at PSG that he wants to play a system more like with France. He's a very good footballer, but also a very intelligent footballer who, who knows what he can do to, to, to make the best for the team. Um, it would be very easy for somebody like that to just sort of hang around scoring goals, but he, he does so much more. So I, I think that French front three is is really, really strong, not just because they're individually all really good players, but because they work really well together. Yeah, a lot of people obviously talking about Mbappe against Carl Walker, but you know Dembele against Luke Shaw's a big battle as well. Luke Shaw's going to have to be on, on his game coming up against Dembele because Dembele is a fantastic footballer as well. Ben, does Olivier Giroud make the combined eleven? Uh, he just misses out, unfortunately for him. Uh, it's a four-two-three-one, so there's balance in there. Uh, you got Jordan Pickford in goal, Carl Walker, Ibrahim Kanate, Harry Maguire, and Teo Hernandez as the back four. Midfield two of Bellingham and Rabiot, so no two Chamonix in there. Uh, there's an attacking three of Saka, Griezmann and Mbappe, and Kane leads to the line. Is that based on the World Cup ratings so, so yeah. far, that team? Yeah. That's, a, that's a good team. I'm quite pleased to see Rabiot in there, because again, watching him so far in this World Cup, I thought he's been really good, Jonathan. Is there any changes you'd make to that team? I mean, I've got a 4-3-3. I mean, look, it doesn't really matter who you pick. There's going to be a good side. Yeah. Um, I've gone for the 4-3-3, given that's the formation both teams play. Um, so Pickford in goal, Walker for Rani, but Meccano, Tio Hernandez. I mean, Kanate only played the one game, didn't he? Then uh, Shuamani at the back of midfield, Gresman and Bellingham flanking him, and then Dembele, Ken and Mbappe. Good team. Like you say, you can put a lot of combinations together and you'll come up with a good team. Now, Who Scored put up a clip of me in the last podcast and I got absolutely hammered by the general public because I said England had the the best depth in terms of attacking players, in terms of the players to to bring on and change a game, Jonathan. But then I was getting slated by people from Brazil, people from France, people from Argentina because they were saying I was English bias. I wasn't saying England have got the best attack. I was saying England have got the best depth of attack. And when you get to knock out a football, those things are important to have those players to bring on and England have definitely got that yeah I mean Brazil I think are the only team who could challenge him and maybe with Gabriel Jesus being out now it's tipped towards England but yeah in terms of having a different range of or a range of different attacking options they can bring on to have you know, Rashford who is he still joint top no he must be one behind Mbappe so he's second, joint second top score in the tournament uh, Grealish to come on Madison if he's ever fit again he has been one of the better players in the Premier League um, Mount isn't getting in the side. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, Callum Wilson even. Um, and and Sterling, if, if it's the same. For well, St- St- Sterling, if he comes back, yeah, I, I, I don't know what's going on with that situation. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that Sterling was England's top scorer in the Euros, I think, was he? Uh, yeah. yeah, four goals in the Euros. So, um, it's, it's not just the the number of players, but it's the fact that they can all do slightly different jobs. Yeah. Um, and that, that I think, yeah, it's it's a great asset England have that 
you know, we sort of think of England and, and England, uh, I think the stat came out of the Euros that over the past 20 years, England have the worst record of the sort of big nations um, uh, for winning games, having taken the lead. I think taking the lead they, they in, in knockout football, they only win half their matches. Um, but that strength and depth should flip that on its head. It means they can be drawing with half an hour to go and they, they've got, got weapons to bring on. Exactly what I was saying. I was getting but, but getting absolutely pummeled on, on social media. Look at the look at the people that have scored in the in the tournament already. As everyone that plays in the front three except for Wilson, they've, they've all scored. I think mm. so. Well, eight, eight different scores, is it? Yeah. Harry Maguire hasn't even scored yet. Yeah, that's coming. That's coming. That the Maguire. I mean, he he corner. was he was uh, you know the second top scorer in qualifying. So. Henderson scored, scored as well. You know, there's goals all all over all over the pitch for, for well, actually not all over the pitch because, like you said, none of the defenders have scored. But you know, the, the midfield and the attack, whoever's there, is putting the ball in the back of the net. So I didn't think that comment I made last week was particularly outlandish. But then, as I say, ended up getting absolutely pummeled. Gone and I don't really like doing predictions, but it's it's probably a coin toss, isn't it? This one, it's it, it's a tough one to call, Jonathan. I had marginally favour France, but like 55-45. Really? Um, yeah, I think I just. Because Mbappe's in such good form, one one fans to win on penalties or fans to nick it two one. I've got it straight. I've got it straight down the middle. I, I can't separate them at all. I, I, I think it's fifty fifty. I think England and, and, and France. Are, uh, I think it's pretty. Equal. I get what you say. Mbappe's been the best player at this tournament so far. I think he's the only proper proper elite player in this tournament. Mbappe, in my, in my opinion, I think I think he's absolutely unreal. I think there's nobody touches him. But I think England have got. I've got the team more so that more so than France, and I think England have got a bit more solidarity as well. Yeah, I mean, what I quite like actually is for um, Jordan Henderson or somebody to really get in his face and really wind him up. I think he is wind upable, and I think everybody's sort of been sort of bowing down before him so far. And I think yeah, be a bit tactical with you, bit of bit of treading on his toes, bit of yeah, just bit of a knee in the thigh. Have a bit of a whisper about how much better Neymar is than him, and uh, see what happens. Oh, Jonathan Wilson loves the dark arts. I like yeah, it. I'd, 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 I'd be, I'd be coaching Jordan Henderson in insulting phrases in French, given the success of his insulting phrases in, Port- in Portuguese against Arsenal that time. Let's get Jonathan down to the down to the the centre, the training centre. Let's get Jonathan down there, training England on the dark arts. He sounds very savvy at that kind of thing. Ben, go on then. What are you saying? Straight down the middle again. It's such a tough one to call. Um, I do think it's going to go the full distance, and we're going to see a penalty shootout. It's just, I think France will probably nick it on penalties. No, God, I'm not Sorry, ready. For, I'm not ready for I'm not ready for penalty drama. When you say that, okay, like I mean. The only thing I said about penalties, I'd back Pickford in a penalty shoot over Lloris. Yeah. Uh, and I, England have been practising without a goalkeeper, which I think is really interesting. Um, the nets, the different nets that you put in. Yeah, but uh, it, it's there's been a lot of really bad penalties in this tournament. Oh, horrendous. Um, it's particularly in the shootouts. And I, 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 sort of, I mean, look, this is based on two shootouts of an idle thought I had yesterday. But I wonder if, like, if you're, you know, if you're like the first choice penalty, if you're Jorginho or somebody, you do all the stuttering and you know sit the keeper down and roll it the other way. Fine, if you're not used to taking it, just smack it in the corner. And I think a lot of the bad penalties have been people trying to send the keeper the wrong way. And I, th- I think if you just smack the ball in the corner, especially if you're somebody who doesn't have, yeah, you know, the keeper can't look at your record and go, "Oh, he's taken twenty penalties in the last two years, and ninety percent of them go this way." Mm. If you're somebody who's only taken two or three penalties in the last two years, 
just hit it hard in the corner and 90% of the time, 95% of the time you'll score. So if you can practice that, that you know, it's like a golfer sort of practicing four-foot putts, just being able to hit the back of the hole, hit the back of the hole, hit the back of the hole. If you can practice putting it within eight inches of the post and you do that in a penalty shootout, you, you'll probably score. So, I mean, we heard that Spain had taken a 1,000 penalties in practice and they didn't score any. So, you know, it obviously pressure does things. But again, like a golfer honing those four-foot putts, the more automatic it becomes, the more replicable it should be under pressure i mean france france got knocked out of the euros on penalties as well you know mbappe was the one who missed the crucial penalty he was against switzerland wasn't he in, in the euros mm. and and they went out you know so france like you say they could have problems as well we know my predictions are very very important because obviously i called england to get to the final and lose on penalties last time round. and ben i made a good prediction in the who scored whatsapp group as well had Martin Lawrence's pants down in the whatsapp group i mean, I, I think england i think england will win in 90 minutes that's what, I, that's what I'm going to go with. 2-1 to England in 90 minutes. I, th- I think they can do it. I, I think I think England England are capable of beating France in 90, so I'll, I'll go with that. Let's look at some of the other games in the quarterfinals then, and we'll look at Netherlands v Argentina. Yeah, Jonathan, the first time Messi's coming up against, a, I say elite opposition, I'm not sure the Dutch are elite, but, you know, against a, a better side now. For It'd be interesting to see how he, how he handles coming up against the Dutch organised back three, because if, if nothing else, the Dutch are organised. Yeah, they are, but I mean, it's not like he's not playing against high-level opposition in the Champions League on a regular basis. Um, no. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubts about his ability. Um, it's, it's a, I think it's much more about the rest of Argentina around him. Um, so you, you, you know, he plays a totally different type of football to everybody else. He he walks. Uh, you know, he, his running stats are like four and a half kilometers a game, which you know is is less than half. You know what you'd expect, but that's that's who he is now, and it, it works. And um, I, I sort of almost think Argentina, it's not really about analysing them tactically. It's not about kind of how they play. It's its about the sort of emotional thing of, of carrying Messi and the sort of sense of the rest of the squad, the, the entire country, the other, the, the Argentina fans. Is, I mean, maybe Morocco are, are similar, but huge numbers of Argentina fans here that every game they play, the sort of three quarters of the stadium is, is, is blue and white stripes. Um, and it, it's this sort of great you know, emotional battle for them um and so far that's been good enough now the dutch are the opposite of that they've been very cold they've been very precise and very clinical that, that that's the way lou van hal likes it so it, it's you know, among all the other reasons why it's a fascinating game that, that sort of sense of, of fire and ice in this game i think is is one of the great great aspects of it argentina did almost come and stuck against Australia, a plucky Australia side. Ben, you know, the second goal Australia gave Argentina as well was abysmal goalkeeping, you know. So, a lesser nation did cause Argentina problems and they're now coming up against a team who I think has been good so far. And with those wing-backs as well, the way Holland play, is there anything he needs to counteract Scaloni a little bit? It's just whether he relies on McAllister and, you know, DePaul to kind of operate a bit further wide to stop Blind and Dumfries? Does he maybe switch to like a 4-3-1-2, have Messi up there alongside maybe Alvarez, bring in another body in midfield to help kind of stretch that Dutch midfield and counter those wing-backs when they do get forward? Because there will be a lot of space behind the Argentina full-backs. Nina um, and Acuna do like to get forward, uh, maximise that space that Alvarez and Di Maria will leave when they do cut inside. So... You know, it's going to be a lot of pressure on that Argentine midfield to stop those two from getting forward because, as we saw against the USA, they can be absolutely clinical when they do get into that final third. I mean, USA didn't really do enough to counter Dumfries. They just 
gave him free reign essentially and he absolutely tore them apart and blind on the other flank you know got a goal and assist as well so i i it's an issue that you know does scaloni stick with that 4-3-3 it's worked well since that saudi arabia defeat it worked well after he switched to that system against uh, mexico and then against poland and australia it it's a system gotten through to the quarterfinals but it's whether they have that midfield personnel to stop the Dutch midfield and then to counter those wing backs. Um, I mean, McAllister, Dupont, uh, and Hernandez, uh, Fernandez, sorry, are going to have a huge task on their hands to kind of keep those two at bay. So that's an interesting tactical battle. It'll be one that's definitely worth keeping an eye on because Dumfries and Blint are among the top fullback or wing backs still left in the competition. Yeah, Dumfries, good tournament player. I always enjoy watching him play for Holland. He's got that freedom as well. And he's very, very dangerous. And Jonathan, is the Argentina defence strong enough to handle Gakpo and, and Depay if they're simmering as well? It's an issue because, uh, you know, Otamendi, if players run at him, is not great. Romero, you wouldn't quite trust that. I, I think there's a good chance he goes to back three, actually. I, you know, he, he went to back three uh, after about an hour, again, maybe slightly before that, um, against Australia, later on against Poland. But he took Gomez off for uh, Martinez. And I think they might go to that, that, that back three as a way of, you know, put wing back against wing back and then a bit of extra protection against the Dutch pace through the middle. Yeah, going to be an interesting uh, one, this one. I mean, sorry, a lot, a lot, I think, depends on whether Demir is fit, because if he is, you probably want him in there. Um, and then it's quite hard to see who else you leave out. If he's not fit, then it's quite easy, I think, to go with just messing of hours up front and keep that same midfield three of McAllister, DePaul and um, uh, Enzo Fernandez. Yeah, so another game that's, that's too tight to call. Again, I'd like to split it down the middle. I can't, can't really call this one at all. Morocco v Portugal. Unbelievable scenes from Morocco last night, going through on penalties against Spain. Ben, just they've been a, a joy to watch, and they, they almost feel like the home nation with the support that they've got as well. Morocco, that really clever game from them last night against Spain. Yeah, I think what's been important for them is uh, ZH's return to the national fold. I mean, he missed um, Afcon twenty twenty one, and they kind of didn't really have a consistent right winger. You have Buffal on the left, so he he was very important to them, especially last night. He absolutely tore Marcus Lorente to shreds. Um, but having Ziyech on the right and then uh, Buffon on the left, there's that sort of attacking, consistent attacking balance in there when they do go to a, you know, a favoured 4-3-3. And then Sofi Amrabat has been an absolute midfield monster. I mean, there was links, reports of him joining Tottenham sort of back in January and they were scoffed at and laughed at and people thought, well, why are we signing, you know, this player who can't even get to the Fiorentina eleven. Yet yeah, he's dominated the midfield with the likes of Busquets, the likes of uh, De Bruyne and Witzel and Modric and Brozovic. Uh, so there's, it's, he's very, very important to how they play. He you know, wins the ball, <clears throat> shifts it on to those to run at the defenders. And then, of course, Hakimi as well, Mr. Ice Cold, taking that Penenka penalty against uh, Spain last night. They're going to give Portugal a real tough time. They're very tough to sort of get the better of. They're very compact and they will hit them through Ziyech and Buffal down the wing. So it'll be interesting to see how those two fare against Cancelo and Guerrero, how they get in behind. And then if Santos does go to a 4 3 1 2, as he did against, um, God, who is it, in one of the group stage games and puts Fernandez there, how does he come back against Amrabat or whether he goes, sticks him back on the right again where he's been so effective? So I think Portugal were superb against Switzerland, but I think they'll be 
up against it when they take on Morocco. Because yeah, Morocco have shown a, f- a few different facets of the, of the game so far in this tournament, Jonathan. I thought they were, I mean, they've been pretty solid defensively actually throughout, but against Belgium, they showed a, a clinical edge as well to, to go with that and a bit of cleverness as well with, with the set pieces. They're, they're, they're more than just a team that can sit back and defend. I mean, that's pretty much what they did against Spain, but they still always carry a threat. And uh, again, I think this one's pretty tight to call Morocco v Portugal. Mm, I mean, Morocco, I think, was probably the best footballing side of the Cup of Nations. And uh, it's the game against Egypt where they they were totally on top the first 10 minutes and they sort of slowly got dragged down into this street battle. Um, and they, they, they ended up, it became a scrap. And yeah, they should have just kept playing. Um, Ziyech coming back obviously gives them uh, you know, the threat on both flanks. But yeah, they've, I think they've got the, by far the lowest XG of any team left in the tournament. I think they had the lowest XG of any team in the last 16. Um, but really well organised, defend really well. And, and those those counter-attacks are very well structured. It's not a case of just sitting men back, whacking it forward and hoping. It, it's, it's, a, it's a proper, coherent, thought-out plan. So I think that is a big, a big problem for Portugal. Um, and I think the, the slight danger for Portugal is they get carried away by by that game in Switzerland. They sort of think that, you know, the you know, Ronaldo's gone, uh, Ramos is, is there, and clearly that has freshened them up. It has there's a sort of lightness about them there. There is sort of much more movement up front, and that gets the best out of that attacking midfield three of of Joe Felix, um, Bernardo Silva, and Bruno Fernandes. Um, they've got uh, Rafael Leao to, to come into that as well off the bench. So I, I think. That, you know, they, they they look much more um, effective as an attacking force. The, the danger is to get carried away by that. But Fernando Santos is a very sort of cautious, defensive, canny manager. Um, and I think it's revealing that he, he played Dalot, not, not Cancelo. Yeah, as well. I was going to ask you about that. R- Ronaldo being left out got all the headlines. But Neves and Cancelo were also left out. Um, it's, so it's a much younger... Um, you know, Otavio playing deep in midfield, which you wouldn't necessarily... Yeah, think of him as being um, a, a, a player who give you solidity. Um, yeah, they, they they just felt a lot fresher, and I, and I, I suspect that's how how they'll play again. I mean, it'd be absurd to change things after a six-one win when it was so impressive. But being on the front foot against Morocco, yeah, you, you're sort of playing into Morocco's hands by doing that. Yeah, obviously you've got to worry about the break against. It was interesting to see players like João Felix without Ronaldo to take in centre stage. I mean, João Felix bizarrely has been linked with Villa in the last twenty four hours, which I would. I mean, no offence, but he's better than that. I mean, that's exactly what I've been saying. But the the Villa podcast gang has been getting <laughs> carried away. There's been a lot of podcasts about João Felix. I would say, why people do that? There's absolutely no chance João Felix is going to go to Aston Villa. But Marker, Marker, are saying Villa are well positioned. To get Jao Felix in, absolutely no chance because he was very good last night, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, he really was. Um, trying to think what it's what it's like. It's, it's it was a bit like, you know, when you've been on a night out, you've had a really salty pizza or a kebab on the way home. You wake up at four in the morning, your mouth is just burning with dryness. Been there, been there many times. And then and then you go and have a nice cold glass of water, and that just that's the best drink you ever have. That's a sense of release, and that was what it was. Dropping Ronaldo was that glass of water. Uh, but then the other weird thing, and I don't know if this was obvious on TV, but there was from about four one up, so from like midway through the second half, there was a lot of the crowd were chanting Ronaldo's name. But then you realise that the sort of hardcore Portuguese Portugal fans were sort of booing the people calling for Ronaldo. So this weird mix, yeah. This is this weird mix of sort of football tourists. Um, you know, he, he just wanted to see the famous player, 
Uh, you were you know, desperate for him to be there. And then actual people who wanted Portugal to win kind of going, no. <laughs> um, and, you know, Shantosh brought him on, I don't know, what was it, about a quarter of an hour ago? Yeah. And he sort of lumbered about his every touch. It was almost, it felt like, it was always a bit patronising. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't, because I'm sure they were people who were genuinely excited to see Ronaldo, but these great roars every time he sort of managed to touch the ball without falling over. Um, it, it sort of felt like the, the really crap kitted school that you kind of just oh, go on, let's, please let him get a goal because he did, you know. And it's just really weird to see Ronaldo sort of reduced to that, this sort of figure of pity. Yeah, and just stop taking free kicks, Ronaldo, honestly. But when he when he's lining up that free kick, there's this huge roar, and he, he, his face flicked up. Yeah, we got TV screens on the desk, his face flicked up on the on the screen, and it, he had this like little embarrassed smile as if he knew he's going to smash it in the wall again. Yeah, was it's like, just ridiculous. Yeah. It was almost like, so why, why are these people making me do this? Like, oh, he's, um, it's got to be him, though, hasn't it? He? He, he caused the shots when he's on the pitch. But I mean, the, the, the sort of narrative, um, the sort of the perfect endpoint for, for, for this era of football is an Argentina Portugal final and Ronaldo coming off the bench as he was forced off against France in the 2016 final and him somehow scoring a late winner. Um, and so all the glory in incredibly unsatisfactory circumstances. But that sort of feels like the natural conclusion to to this period of football. Let's look quickly at Croatia against Brazil, because Brazil obviously ripped South Korea apart the other night, Ben. Croatia, I sometimes think, how are they, how are they doing this? How, how, they're, just so, they're so efficient as well. How, how, how do they manage to get this far? Because they've got no really real forward of, of any note, Croatia, although also Perisic on the flank is always very, very reliable. But... Even the other night, I watched them and thought, they're going to go out here. Japan are going to have too much for them. Obviously, you're a massive Japan fan. But, so, but they, they, managed to get, they managed to get through Croatia and they get themselves to the latter stages of the tournament every time. Yeah, it's just the combination of... They've got plenty of winning experience in that midfield in Kovacic, Brozovic and Modric. And then Perisic has that experience up top as well. Um, the lack of striker is you know, an interesting one, but again... As you said, you've got Perisic there to score if needs must. I mean, he should have arguably, he, he could have scored in the first half, you know, a bit of indecisiveness. I think he should maybe should have squared it to, I think it was Kramaric who made that late run into the box. But, I mean, he scored that incredible header that drew them level against Japan. Um, and they just find a way. They just have this experience that, you know, these players have garnered over the years for club football. And they just keep, churning and churning and churning until they get the result that they want and that's going to be an interesting one to watch against brazil yeah modric is still one of my favorite footballers to watch even even at his age i think he's absolutely wonderful to watch still is croatia's best bet maybe to just try and get brazil all the way and get to a penalty shootout jonathan because i think they've got a hundred percent record in world cup penalty shootouts yeah i mean there's only one way croatia can play in this game which is to defend and fight for everything and hope they either nick something or take it to penalties um, and, and they're very good at that. You know, they they consistently outperform what you think their talent suggests they should do. They they whether it's experience, whether it's something sort of in the national character, but they have that 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 toughness, that resilience that so they they just keep getting results. In Brazil, since two thousand and two, Jonathan, they've been knocked out at the quarterfinal stage in three of the four tournaments. That's not a great record, but it does kind of feel like it may be different this time. Uh, they're big favourites, clearly, but um, I'd worry about the back of that midfield. I'd worry about the full-back areas. I don't think it's a, it's a great, great Brazil team. I mean, a lot of people got very excited, I think, by the win over South Korea, and you know, there was some great, great, great goals in that game. But yeah, they scored after seven minutes. 
which is a nice goal. And, and you know, the um, Palabenda, the South Korean manager, said, oh, we were unlucky because you know, anything could have happened. So that ball flashed across the near post, which is kind of true. But, you know, a lot of goals are like that. You get to the line, you pull it back. And, and Vinicius Junior took it really oh, well. Lovely finish. Um, then the second goal is, yeah, the, the penalty, it's clearly a penalty, but it, it's it's sort of a slightly freakish thing of a player clearing the ball, kicking somebody who's nipped in and he hasn't hasn't noticed. Two and a half to 13 minutes, and Saskia were never coming back from that. So the last sort of 75 minutes of a game were just this exhibition. And, yeah, they scored two lovely goals in that time, but I, I, I knew Brazil would score lovely goals. What I don't know is, is the back of that midfield and the full-back strong enough against a team who goes at them? And to be honest, we still haven't really seen that. Yeah, we're probably not going to say it. I, I can't remember if they're against Friday or Saturday. We, we, we're not, we're not going to say that against Croatia because Croatia, their best bet is to sit back, unfortunately. That's that's the only tie that I, I feel is, is quite one, one-sided, one that you can pick, pick a winner there that out of the quarterfinals. Ben, that's, the others all feel very tight. That, that's the only one that doesn't feel that tight to me. I think Brazil will, will get through it relatively comfortably. Um, I think they do have the strength to kind of get the better of Croatia. I mean, Modric, as good as he is, is now 37. Does he have another sort of 90-plus minutes in him to control that midfield? Brozovic and Kovacic. Kovacic has injury issues as well. I, it's the least interesting quarterfinal, but it's the one that's kind of the easiest to call, because, in my opinion. Uh, and that you just feel that this is Brazil's to lose, really, because despite their poor quarterfinal record... They should have enough about them to get the better of Croatia. That does us for today's podcast. We will be back with us. Is it semi-final preview we're doing next? I assume, Ben, that, that would make a lot of sense considering we've yeah. previewed the quarterfinals today. So, yeah, we'll be back <laughs> next week to preview the semi-finals. Hopefully, hopefully, England will be part of that discussion. Jonathan, I hope you have a lovely few days with no football to actually go and see, but I know you've got a lot of workload to, to get through, so I wish you all the very best with that, and thank you for joining us today. Make sure you don't miss our next podcast, so subscribe to the channel with your post notifications on, so you do know exactly when that is out. Hope you enjoy all the football at the weekend, and hope you enjoy the England game as well, please God. Only one thing left to say, stay safe. <laughs>